John chapter 19, uh, we're going to be reading verse 16 through 30. John 19, 16 through 30. If you have your Bibles, if you'll meet me there, uh, and you can read along as, as I uh, read aloud. Uh, of course, we believe the gospel writer John is writing these things. He's writing them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore these things come to us with authority, the same kind of authority as if if Jesus were saying these things to us himself. So let's hear from the word of Christ, John 19, beginning in verse 16. So they took Jesus. He went out, bearing his own cross, to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side, Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write, this is the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments. They divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. And the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross... Of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple to whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, Knowing that all was now finished, Jesus said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to its mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head. And he gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there isn't a way to your place than the cross of Jesus. The old song says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Bethlehem. But really, they're met in Jerusalem. And still to this day, yeah, as many of you know, I just got back from leading a trip, some of our great church members to Israel and to other parts in the Middle East. And you know, I'm still always struck when I go to Jerusalem. It's such a palpable place. It's such a powerful place. And the thing that still looms over the city, I mean, this is amazing. The thing that still looms so profoundly over the city is this event that happened 2,000 years ago, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's still felt there in a powerful way. There's no other event in history that draws such attention. The hopes and fears, right, of all the years are met in Jerusalem. 
We've been in a sermon series these last couple of weeks where we're looking at the cross scene. And in particular, we're looking at the seven things, the seven statements, the seven phrases that Jesus said while he was on the cross. And they're incredibly instructive. They're incredibly helpful to understand who Jesus was, what his purpose was when he came, his character, and really what he desires for us. And today I want to look at this statement from verse 28. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and notice, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. As we meditate on this, uh, three things I want to talk to you about. The thirst of every heart, the thirst of Jesus, and the power of his offer. So let's look at the thirst of every heart. You know, there's a lot about water in the Bible. Have you ever noticed this? There's a lot about thirsting and thirst and water. I mean, it's, it's all over the Bible. Uh, it's, it's a major theme, rivers, seas. I mean, there's, there's a lot about water in the Bible. Of course, the whole Bible begins, the spirit, the spirit of the Lord. I mean, the second verse of the Bible, the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. Just a few chapters later, water's a big theme. Of course, uh, humanity had sinned and fallen away from God, and God brings his judgment. He brings destruction on the whole world. How? With water, with a sea, you could say, by flooding the world. Of course, God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt through the waters, through the waters, as it turns out, of judgment, because the same waters that they safely passed through would mean judgment for the Egyptians just a few moments later. The people of Israel crossed the Jordan River to get into the promised land. You know, drought is a big theme. If you've read the Bible, drought is a reoccurring theme that we see in Scripture. Famously in the prophets, Jonah the prophet was punished by God. He was thrown into the sea, into the raging sea as he was running from God. And what you see in Scripture, it's interesting, if you follow the, uh, the symbolism, the sea is often a sign of God's judgment, of God's displeasure, of God's wrath, of God's um, dislike of something. It's, it's his judgment, the sea. But the river is the opposite. The river is life. The river is life-giving. The river is a sign of God's blessing. There's this interesting juxtaposition between the sea and the river. Of course, the story of the flood. It's a sea that covers the face of the earth. Of course, the Egyptians were flooded by the sea. Uh, Jonah was thrown into the sea. But again, the river is a sign of life. I mean, how does the whole body Bible begin. When all was at peace in the world, before there was sin, there was a garden in Eden. And what do we find in Eden? Four rivers. <laughs> rivers providing life and blessing from God. Moses, interestingly, was thrown into the river, which seemed like judgment at first. But of course, what did that provide? What did that lead to? It actually led to the salvation of God's people. The Jordan River was a great source of life and health and prosperity for the people of Israel. There's many passages about rivers in the desert or springs. It's it's all through the Bible, rivers and seas. And when you get to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, what do we see? New Jerusalem. And what is the main feature of the New Jerusalem? You know what it is? The main feature of the New Jerusalem, there's a river flowing right through the city. And an invitation to anyone who is thirsty, come and drink from the waters of this river. 
But there's another interesting description, Revelation 21, that we see about the new Jerusalem. The sea was no more. There's no sea. Isn't that interesting? When all is well of the world, there's a river, but no sea. Of course, in the life of Christ, we see this same kind of theme. Um, this continues throughout the ministry of Jesus. Much of the ministry of Jesus happens around water. Uh, you know, we were just on this trip, as I mentioned, you go to the Sea of Galilee and look around and see so much of the life and ministry of Jesus right there in that one spot. Water's a big theme in the Gospel of John. Jesus heals two people in Jerusalem in the Gospel of John. Both happen at water. One's at the Pool of Bethesda. Remember that story? Jesus heals the man who's been lame 38 years. One at the Pool of Siloam, John 9, where Jesus heals the blind man. John 4, remember Jesus meets the woman of Samaria where? Around a well, around a spring. There's water there. And it's around this water that he first shares that he actually is the Messiah. John 7, we looked at this last year. We're about to jump back into our little John series that we've been chipping away at. But John 7, the Feast of Booths, the high point of the feast where the high priest goes down to the Pool of Siloam and he takes water to represent the blessing of God. It's a, it was a festival to commemorate the time when Israel was in the desert, when they were in the wilderness and God provided for him. And the high priest takes a pitcher of water and pours it out to say, God has provided again. And what does Jesus say at that moment in the, the Feast of Booze, at the high point of the feast, he yells out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And we start to see something with that statement. You know, a lot of people say, okay, <laughs> Jesus said, I thirst on the cross. Well, obviously, <laughs> it's the Middle East. It's hot. He's on a cross. The guy's thirsty. That's a, there's nothing going on here. It's just a descriptive addition that the author was making here. But no, that's, that's not what's going on here. And you know what's interesting is, is you know, all of, these, all of these passages, if you read this, Jesus is fulfilling scripture all the time. I mean, he's always fulfilling scripture. Yet this one, look at verse, let me put up 28 again. It says, right before he says, I, I thirst, it says, Jesus, to fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. What's going on here? What's going on here? Now, now this whole theme of thirsting, obviously thirsting is something physical, but this idea is always related to something more than just the physical, more than just on what's going on, on the outside. It's related to what's going on on the inside. Remember the story of Jesus. The first time he shared with anyone that he was the Messiah, John 4, he meets the woman at the well of Samaria and he asks her for a drink. He says, would you give me a drink? And she says, well, hold on. You know, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You know, we, we really shouldn't be talking and he said, well, if you knew who you were talking to, <laughs> you would have asked him for a drink. And she says, well, you don't, you don't even have a bucket. You know, Harold, what, what do you mean? And, and then he picks up, this is uh, verse 13. He says, this is John 4. He says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the physical water in the well, will be thirsty again. But if you drink, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty Again, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up even to eternal life. 
And I love the woman's response. I mean, here's this woman. She's been carrying these huge jars out to this well every day in the hot sun. She's trying not to spill the water on the way back. Jesus says, look, I got water. If you have it, you'll never be thirsty again. And she says, give me the water. Give me some of that. Give me this water so I don't have to be thirsty. So I don't have to keep coming here, keep drawing water. And Jesus, he turns it here. He turns it. It's the same thing he's doing in John 7 when he says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. It's the same thing he's doing here. Then he says, he says, go call your husband. Go call your husband. It seems like an interesting turn in the story. But Jesus is explaining to us what, what this analogy of thirst is all about. Thirst is something that we all have externally, but it's also something that you all have internally. Your, your, your body thirsts, but you know what else thirsts? Your soul. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, if we're going to talk about the thirst, if we're going to talk about the water that really produces eternal life, we need to talk about what's going on inside of you. Go call your husband. And of course, if you're familiar with the story, she says, well, I have no husband. And Jesus said, well, of course, you're right in saying you have no husband. The truth is you have five husbands. You've had five husbands. And the man that you're now living with is not your husband. What he was getting at is here's this woman living in Samaria. And over and over and over again, she had gone to the well of marriage. <laughs> She'd gone to the well of relationship. If I could just get the right man, if I could just get the person to love me rightly, then I would be satisfied. Then my soul wouldn't thirst anymore. And he's basically saying to her, you've gone to that well five times and you're still going to it. And it doesn't satisfy you. You keep going to that well to satisfy your soul. And what are you coming? You're coming up dry every single time. She thought, if I could just find the right person, I'll be happy. I'll be satisfied. I'll be whole. And Jesus says, no, you're looking in the wrong place for water here. I have water. If you just listen to me, I have water that will, will satisfy your soul and even lead to eternal life. And here's the deal, guys. You may not have been married five times, but you all thirst. You all have some longing in your heart. You all want something to satisfy you. And you're all going to some well. I don't know what well you're going to, but it, you're going to a well. You know, your well could just be like, look, if I, could, if I could just find the right person, right? <laughs> if I could just have this much money, you know, here's my number. I just need this much working capital and then I'm good. If I could just get this job, if I could just have this recognition, if I could just have a child, if I could just be loved and everything would be right, then I would be so satisfied. And in the same way that it's not wrong to actually thirst for physical water, it's not wrong to desire love and to desire wealth and to desire recognition. It's not wrong to desire those things, but the point is, is none of those things will ever satisfy you. Your soul was never meant to be satisfied by a relationship with another human being, or your soul was never meant to be satisfied by status in a career. Your soul was never meant to be satisfied by wealth or some station in life or some sort of recognition. None of those things will satisfy you. They'll always leave you empty. They'll always leave you thirsty. You'll have to keep going back to that well over and over and over again. Your soul is so much bigger than that, don't you see? All of those things are just little cups, <laughs> When your soul desires a river, 
That's what Jesus is saying to this woman. You've been going to this well over and over and over again, and it hasn't satisfied you. But I have water, and if you would just drink of it, if you would just find it, it will well up in you to eternal life. Here's the question. What, what, What well are you going to? What water do you long for? I want to be honest with you here today. I mean, there's some of you, and you... You want the Jesus well. I mean, you, yes, you want the Jesus well. Sure. I mean, you're here. You're in church. Who didn't want the Jesus well? But the well that really you long for, that you think will satisfy you, is some work. It's some career. It's something over here. You want the Jesus well. But this is really the well. The title, the money, the success. And if it came down to it, if I had to choose between this well and this well, it's like, well, look at me, I want the Jesus well. But I'm not going to risk my career over it. I'm not going to risk getting this promotion over being faithful to the word of God. That's kind of private. If, it came, if it's this well or this well, it's, it's, it's this well. You know, some of you, it's, it's that same way you, you, with, with, with marriage, or with some relationship. You, you want to be loved. And of course, I get that. But, but you're saying, this is the well. <laughs> this is the well. That, of course, I mean, I want the Jesus well, but really we go to the Jesus well and it's as if we say, well, can you help me get this well? <laughs> you know? Jesus, will you just help me get this well? Because, man, to be loved, this is what's going to make me happy. I just, I just want to get married. And so you know what you do? When you ignore this well for this well, you make all sorts of concessions. You don't live in purity. You you end up doing whatever you can just to serve this idea of being loved. Rather than realizing that the only reason God gave us marriage and relationship is actually to please him and to serve him and to honor him. He, He doesn't become the center of your relationship. He just is something that maybe could help bless it a little bit. Serve it. Make you more likable. Maybe for some of you, it's money. You know, it's, that's the well. I mean, this is what provides for me. This is what takes care of me. You know, you know the, the tithe, giving, and this is not like a generosity sermon, but it's so interesting. You know, people that when we don't tithe, when we're not generous to the Lord with our wealth, we're saying, it's, it's so interesting. We're saying this little 10% of money is going to do a better job providing for me than God than obedience to God. I mean, that's what you're saying. It's not even your full salary. I mean, I would, I think, you know, if we think logically about it, you probably would put God up against your whole salary. I mean, you may be like, well, I got a promotion last year. So I'm, still, I'm still going with God, you know. But, but when we're, we lack generosity, we say, well, no, actually, this, this little sliver of my money is, is more of a provider for me than God. Don't you see, we, we all want the Jesus well. But it's like the well that we really long for. What is that? What, what well are you going to over and over and over again and saying, this will provide, this will make you satisfied, this will make you satisfied? And what Jesus is trying to say to you is, no, no, it's, it's a jar, it's a cup of water. Your soul is too big for that. The, the only well that you can drink from that will actually leave you satisfied, that you'll never thirst again, is me. Won't you find me? Won't you see me? What well are you drinking from? And it's so palpable in Scripture. 
it's in a sense that Jesus is saying all of these other wells are like salt water. They'll just leave you more thirsty. The, the only real river is in knowing God. You know, there's a story, it's a parable that Jesus tells. I never really understood it until just a couple years ago. I, I've read this parable my entire life and I, I think I understood some parts of it, but I didn't really understand it until just a few years ago. But it's a story of the rich man and Lazarus. You know the story? It's not a true story. It's a parable that Jesus tells to you know, give an illustration. And there's a story of this very wealthy man. And then there was this beggar. There was this kind of servant beggar that lived at his gate named Lazarus. And they both die. And Lazarus goes to heaven. And the rich man goes to hell. And Lazarus goes to be at Abraham's side in heaven. And Lazarus, Lazarus goes to be at Abraham's side. And the rich man, of course, is in hell. So the rich man calls out to Abraham from hell. And he says, Abraham, Abraham. And if you know the story, he says, send Lazarus. <laughs> send Lazarus to give me some water to cool my tongue for I am in agony. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a very powerful story, but I, I kind of missed what it was really about. If you notice the rich man, you know, his whole life he had power, right? He had authority. He was wealthy. He ordered people around. He ordered Lazarus around his whole life. <laughs> and he gets to hell. He's in hell. <laughs> and he's in agony because he's in hell. But he doesn't say to Abraham, I repent. He doesn't say, I, I, I was lousy to Lazarus. I should have treated Lazarus better. I, I should have honored God. I, I spent all my interest on myself. He's, he's in hell and he still is not repenting. You know what he's doing? He's still going to the idol of power. He's still saying, send Lazarus down here. Let him be my servant. It's very interesting. The well that he went to his whole life was the well of power. And here he's in hell. He's in hell. And he's, he's still going to that well. He said, well, if I just had a little more power, then my tongue would be cooled. Then I would be relieved. What well are you going to for satisfaction? What are you thirsting for? Really, what are you thirsting for? Is, is it a well that wells up to eternal life? Is it a well that really can satisfy your soul? This passage, it also makes us think not only of the thirst of every human heart, but also the thirst of Jesus. Jesus says, I thirst, I thirst. He's on the cross and he says, I thirst. Now you might say, okay, well, yeah, of course. Again, Jason, you're making too good a deal of this. He's on a cross. It's the Middle East. It's hot. But here's what's so interesting about this. Go through the whole narrative. Go through the whole narrative. He's lied about, he's betrayed, he's beaten. He's beaten with a cat of nine tails. He's basically beaten to death, he's marched through the city, he's embarrassed, he's nailed to a cross. Okay, he, he, nails go through his hands and feet. He's strung up on a cross. All of this has happened. And you know what the Bible says over and over again? He opened not his mouth. He didn't complain. He never says, that was painful. He never says, stop beating me. He opened not his mouth. And yet here, this is the first time we see a complaint, a request from Jesus I thirst. And, and again, also, it's the first time that we see, so the scripture is fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. What's going on here? Well, there's a lot going on here. You ever have a bad moment and like the you underneath the you comes out? You know what I'm talking about? There's kind of like the you and then like the you underneath the you. I mean, if you've read Freud, it's like the id and the ego. 
right? The ego is like the you that everybody sees, but there's like the id underneath that you kind of keep at bay. But it's your real raw self. It's your real raw emotion. But that guy's in there, you know. The other day I was driving and this guy uh, like flies past me. He's in one of these like souped up sports cars. You know, these, you know the guys. And he, and he flies around me and it's very dangerous. I mean, I feel like such an old man telling this story. But anyway... It's very dangerous. He almost causes an accident. You know, people are having to get out of his way. Well, well, and I'm just like, who is this guy? So finally, he, he got caught by a light. He probably would have run the light, but there was a car in front of him. So I pull up behind him. I'm so mad at this guy. I mean, I just had this like visceral reaction to him. And I could just tell he was a punk, you know? I mean, I just, I could just tell. And so I, the, the, the you underneath the you, the id, you know what I really want to do? Honest moment here, I really just wanted to take my truck and just smash into the back of his car. Yeah. I just wanted to rear in this guy and be like, you love your little precious sports car. I'm going to smash it. But I didn't, of course, do that, right? Because, you know, the other, the, the outer you was like, well, you know, State Farm already doesn't like you, Jason. You know, you just need to, you just need to calm down. Get control of yourself here. So I, you know, I didn't do anything. I let him go. But you, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's like the you underneath the you, right? And sometimes that you comes out. And, and, and a lot of times that you really comes out when you're stretched, when you're at your worst, when, when you're in great peril and pain. Here's what's so interesting about Jesus. I mean, this is Jesus on the cross. This is Jesus when he is stretched in the most profound way. And what comes out of him over and over and over again is scripture. What's at the core of Jesus? What is his form? What is his makeup? It's the word of God. He, he's always meditating on it. He's always saying the word of God. It's what we see all throughout the cross sequence, all throughout this whole sequence. I mean, it's similar to the temptation sequence. Remember the temptation sequence? He's been, he's been fasting for 40 days. Satan himself comes to tempt Jesus. And what comes out? It's just scripture, scripture, scripture. One of my favorite places to go, you know, people, they've been asking me, you know, what, what, what was your favorite spot? And, and uh, you know, I'll just say, I don't like that question, okay? So don't ask me that after the service. Like, because I like it all. It's, it's hard to answer. Like, what do you mean? Was, I mean, you know, how do you, I mean, I'm, you're where the Lord was. I mean, how do, you, how do you like one of those spots more than the other? But anyway, but I will say one spot I do really like that's incredibly powerful for me. And you might have heard me talk about it before. It's St. Peter Galagantu, which we know, and, you know, a lot of those sites we, we we're pretty sure this is where it happened, but this is one that's like 99%, like this happened here. And it's an amazing spot. It's, it's the jail cell where Jesus was kept the night that he was awaiting his crucifixion. He's arrested, he's taken to Caiaphas's house. We know where Caiaphas's house was and there's one jail cell, right? So like 99%, Jesus was kept there. And it's this pit. It's this horrible place, but you can go down in there. I mean, it's an amazing, and you're there just with your group. They usually just do one group at a time. So you're there in this pit. It's where Jesus was as he was facing crucifixion the next day. And when you go down there, you read Psalm 88. And we don't have time to read Psalm 88, the whole thing today, but I want to read a passage of it. And it's, it's, it's what we believe that Jesus was saying, is meditating on. Look at verse 6, Psalm 88. You've put me in the depths of the pit. 
In the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. You've caused my companions to shun me. Even this is right after his disciples had betrayed him, denied him, abandoned him. You've made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. And of course, the next day he's taken out of there and put on trial and beaten and scourged and insulted. He's paraded through city. And through all of this, Jesus didn't open his mouth through all of this suffering and pain. But here we read John 19, 28, Jesus said, do fulfill scripture, I thirst. And they offer him sour wine. And we read in Psalm 69. Look at Psalm 69. It's so aligned with what Jesus experienced here. I wish I had time to go through the whole thing. You know, for homework, I want you to read Psalm 88, Psalm 69, and Psalm 22, these cross Psalms of Jesus. Psalm 69 Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Then verse 19 of Psalm 69. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. In order to fulfill the scriptures, Jesus said, I thirst. You know, the more I study the Bible... The older I get, the more I study the Bible, the more I study the ancient world, the more I just study how life works, the, <laughs> the more convinced I am that this is from the Lord. This is God's word. I am so absolutely convinced that this is from God to us. So far from hiding, trying to hide Christian scriptures, trying to, far from being embarrassed of Christian scriptures, I would hold this out to you and say, look, look at what God has done here. And how he's revealed himself in this profound way in something that was written down a thousand years before these events happened. And I wish I had time again to go through all these psalms. Of course, Psalm 22, this psalm of the cross, we're going to look at the words from this psalm on Friday. But my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Verse 14 of Psalm 22, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted in my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Back to Psalm 88, verse 14. I think it's on the screen there. Oh Lord, why have you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me, afflicted and close to death from my youth? I suffer your tears. I am helpless. Your wrath is swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You see what's going on here? I mean, do you get the thirst of Jesus now? He was thirsty because he was thirsty. From all eternity, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, 
from before eternity, from all time. Jesus existed with the first person, second person of the Trinity. God is love. Three persons, one God. How does that happen? It happens because of love. God is love. These three persons totally and profoundly join together in this relationship of love, of total, pure, strong love. And God would so choose to reveal himself. And the way that God describes himself is father and son. I mean, what a profound love. I want you to understand me as if God's saying is this father and son, parent and child. I understand a little bit of that kind of love as a father who loves my children. I understand a little bit of that love as a child who loves my parents. For all eternity, this pure and profound and deep love and motivated by this love. I want you to hear this. Because God wanted his creation to share in his love, to share in this love that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had with one another, God sent Jesus to save us. God sent Jesus to bring us in. Now, how did he bring us in? Palm Sunday. Jesus rides the donkey into Jerusalem and all the people say, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they thought the deliverance that they needed was from the Romans. Deliver us from the Romans. Kill the Romans. <laughs> Restore Israel. That's what they thought. That's what they were saying. That's what they were, they were waving the palm and saying, deliver us, restore Israel, be the Messiah. Get these Romans out of here. They thought that their problem was something external. And I want to say this to you today. You may have come here today thinking that your main problem is something external, just like those people. If I could just get this promotion, if I could just get past this sickness, if I could just, you know, have, be in a relationship with someone, if I could just get this thing to go away, if I could just get these financial troubles to get behind me, you probably came in here, you might have come in here today thinking your main problem is external. Maybe you're saying, deliver me, God, deliver me, God, deliver me, God, just like they were. But they didn't understand the kind of deliverance that Jesus was going to give him because, you see, it was just a few days later that he would be put to death, that he would die. And they didn't understand what he was doing, but here's what he was doing. He was delivering them. His death was their deliverance. But it wasn't their deliverance from something external. It wasn't their deliverance from the Romans. It was their deliverance from some, some, a problem they had that was much greater than the Romans. A problem that you have that's much greater than your financial struggle or for any sort of physical sickness that you have or any sort of relational strife that you may have. There's actually a greater problem and it's your own sin. It's your enmity with God. It's your own idolatry. It's, it's your going after all these other wells instead of going after the Lord. That is your greatest problem. And that is the problem that Jesus came to deliver us from. And he delivers us from that great problem by identifying with us. Don't you see what's happening here? Jesus came as a human being. He humbled himself in human form to identify with you in all of your weakness. To identify with you in the most profound way. He identifies with you even with your sin. He took on our record of sin. He without sin identified with your sin. He became your sin. He became your idolatry. He became all of those things that you are ashamed of. And he was put out. He was dried up. He became like the pot shirt. He identified with you. You could say it this way. He drank the sea. 
He drank the sea of your sin. He drank the salt water of your sin and was totally dried up by it. He drank the sea so that you could have a river. When we were in Israel, one of the things you do is you go to the Dead Sea. It's one of you swim in the Dead Sea. And it's amazing. I mean, the salinity of the Dead Sea, it's 30, it's 10 times more than regular salt water. 10 times more. So you definitely float. And as we're going down there, our guide, you know, and we only had this one guide. We had great guides, but we had this weird guide one day, and he was warning us. He was like, now look, if you drink a cup of Dead Sea water, it'll kill you. And I'm thinking, like, who is going to drink a cup? Like, who's going to take the first sip and be like, oh, I'll have a whole cup of this? No, I was like, you don't drink salt water. It's disgusting. Like, I was like, who, why are you warning us about this? Nobody's going to do that. Nobody drinks salt water. Except for there was one who did. Jesus drank the cup that made him dry. He drank the sea. He drank all of our sin. He drank all of these things that are offensive. He drank all of judgment. You know, the, the prophets often talk about the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Obadiah, they all talk about this cup of, this cup of wrath. That's why when Jesus was in the garden, that's what, what was his prayer? Let the cup pass. He's using that prophetic imagery. Let, this cup, let the cup of your wrath pass me. I don't want to be buried under the wrath of God. But nevertheless, your will be done, O Lord. Charles Spurgeon said in one place, in one tremendous draft of love, he drank damnation dry. He drank all of God's wrath against our unrighteousness. He drank the sea. In another place, Spurgeon said, there is a cup. Hell was in it. The Savior drank it. Not a sip, then a pause. Not a draft, then a ceasing. But he drained it. Until there is not a dreg left for any of his people. Don't you see what Jesus has done for you? Don't you see how he delivers you? It's not something external. He delivers you from this great problem that we all have internally, our enmity between God, these, our, our desires for things other than God. And the judgment we deserve for that, Jesus took on all of that. And I love this. I love, I love the Spurgeon quote here. He drank it to where there's not a dreg left. He drank left. And Jesus doesn't say, well, the last sip, you've got to drink. No, there's not a drag left. There's nothing left to fear that you, you can approach the very throne of God with boldness, don't you see? We're going to sing a song. It's my favorite song at the end. And it's called, um, it, it's called, uh, And Can It Be? Thank you. It's my fa- it, it is my favorite song. I just had a, I was thinking about the lyric. I was going to say it's called before Bold I Approach, but it's called And Can It Be, but there's this line, and I love to think about it. It says, Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. And I almost can't sing it without getting just choked up about it to think about the day that we're before God. And your name is called. Think about your name being called before God. 
who knows your soul, who knows everything, who knows all that you've desired, who knows all the wells that you so regularly run to for satisfaction instead of running to the one that will actually give you life. He knows all of that. And he calls your name. And you have to stand up. Now, if it's me, if it's me in this room full of a bunch of sinners, I know you guys are all sinners, if it's me in this room and my name is called, I'm embarrassed. I don't want you to know. I mean, I don't want you to see my heart. I don't want you to see who I really am. But because Christ has made me so pure, he drank damnation dry. There's not a dreg left. And so when your name is called, you can stand up boldly before God and before all. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim a crown. This is what Christ has done for us. And here's the deal. If that's true, if there's a well like that, if you're invited to drink, we're going to share fellowship with God, to be called up into the fellowship of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If that's what God is offering you, then well, let's come to the last point. How do we drink of this? I said it this way, the power of Christ's offer. How do we drink of this? How do we drink of this well? And this is the power of Jesus. This is the power of the gospel. I want you to hear this. When Jesus came, he came humbly as a man. Hear this. Don't don't miss this. You, You can't really understand the ministry of Jesus unless you get this. He came as a man. He came like you and me. So humbly. He didn't come as a God. You know, Philippians 2 says, he was in the very form of God, yet he did not consider equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage. He didn't exploit his godness. He humbled himself. He made himself a servant. He became like us. And he became a humble like us. I mean, he was born in a poor household. He was born in a cave. He grew up in this obscure village. He humbled himself in every way. He really wept. He really faced loss and pain and death. He humbled himself in every way. He can so identify with you. I want you to hear that. This is Jesus who can totally identify with you. Jesus can totally identify with you. And in his life, I want you to hear this, the three things that he depended on that led him were the spirit of God, the word of God, and the people of God. Throughout the ministry, the life of Jesus, he's always led along by the spirit of God. He's comforted by the spirit of God. He's led along by the spirit of the God. The Spirit of God leads him throughout his life. The same Spirit of God, if you're a Christian, that's available to you. He's always led along by the Word of God. We talked about this. The very core of Jesus, the id of Jesus, the form of Jesus, is the Word of God. The same Word of God that's available to you. When Jesus was pressed, the Word came out. What what comes out when you're pressed? And the people of God. He he was in community. He had disciples. He was always calling people around. He learned in the synagogue. I mean, he he was dependent on, he made himself dependent on the people of God, the the spirit of God, the word of God, the people of God. And the same thing is available to you. What does it mean to drink of this well? You know, if, if, if that's what, if that was good enough for Jesus, if that's how Jesus stayed in communion, if you will, with his father, by the spirit of God, the word of God, and the people of God, that's how I'm gonna stay in communion with the father. And so I don't know what this means for you today, but for some of you, it might mean baptism. You need to identify publicly before the people of God, I am a follower of Jesus. I want you to know this. Identify with him in his death and resurrection through the sign of baptism. Some of you, it might mean church membership. We have first Sunday today. And it's, you know, it's, I'm not going to be the guy that just like visits around and, you know, here's some good preaching. I'm going to join in with the people 
Because the people of God, that's, that's so important to the Christian life. Some of you, it's, it's committing yourself to the word of God, to being in the word. Again, what, what comes out what comes out when you're pressed? Is it God's word? Is that, is that your form? Some of you, it's, you, you got to deal with some sin in your life. You know, the spirit of God right now is convicting you. Are you going to live by the spirit or are you going to deny the spirit? Maybe the spirit of God is, is pressing you to do something, to take on some bold step. Are you going to keep being a coward or are you going to live by the spirit? Spirit of God, word of God, people of God. It's how Jesus drank from the well. Jesus became dry for us, guys. He drank the sea. He was put out. He became dry. He thirsted so that we in him could drink. Let's receive that invitation as we pray. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to to believe, may we receive the invitation to the river to drink without price. May we drink, Lord, the well that actually satisfies. Father, convict us of our dependence on all these other wells and lead us to the one that springs up in us, eternal life. I pray this in Jesus' name.